A, a couple of weeks ago, um, as part of a, uh, a bail hearing, uh, the, uh, the courts decided to release some of uh, Alison Baden Clay's journals that she wrote. And uh, I hope most of us will be familiar with uh, what's happened to Alison Baden Clay. It was all part of the um, uh, process for uh, Jared Baden Clay to actually get, uh, get bail. So they actually released some of uh, the, uh, the journal. Uh, entries that she actually put in and uh, on news.com.au there was a caption next to some of these journals that actually said this, uh, Alison Baden Clay's journal reveals a lonely mum coping with a broken heart. She writes this uh, in her journals. She writes, I don't want to be alone. I'm afraid of being alone and lonely. Maybe because I think I can't handle it. I'm afraid of failing, failing in my marriage and what people will think. And then down the bottom, she writes loneliness. She says, sometimes at night I feel lonely and cry. Loneliness is, a, is in epidemic proportions, I think, in our culture. See, the truth is that some people make light of it. Some people deny it. Uh, even for some people, a little part inside of them dies so that they can live with the loneliness that they actually have. Uh, and sadly, some people actually die in it. Um, I've got this favourite website that I go to called despair.com and it's kind of, you know how you have all these motivational posters and calendars and all that sort of stuff? Well, despair.com's the opposite. I think it's hilarious, all right? So one of their products is a glass. It's got a mark on the side of it and says the glass is, well, it's actually um, kind of coffee colour and uh, it, it literally says there, this glass is half empty <laughs> all the time, playing on the uh, pessimist. So it's all about pessimists. But they've got this calendar... Uh, entry on loneliness, uh, and I think it's pretty funny, but it's actually pretty close to the truth. Loneliness. If you find yourself struggling with loneliness, you're not alone, and yet you are alone. So very alone. <laughs> isn't that, to some degree, I think that's a really good description of our culture, isn't it? Now, loneliness is a real problem, and let's be honest, it's, it's a real problem for everyone. It's not just a problem for people um, who don't have a family. I mean, you can have a family, you can have a marriage, and you can have quite intense seasons or uh, passages of loneliness. And some people, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, actually die lonely. Check this one out. This is in the Courier-Mail, I think, earlier this year. Uh, notice the uh, heading up there in the uh, paper, 200 metres from busy central station in Sydney, 15 minutes walk to the city centre, but a woman lay dead in this terrace house for eight years. And no one knew. She, she died lonely and no one knew. And I've got a whole bunch of news articles. There's one from uh, Croatia, I think it was, where a lady died and no one knew about it for 35 years. And she was in a house. And you look at that and you just think, how does someone get to the point where they die and no one else knows about it? Well, I, I think it's because part of them died before they, they physically died. You know? and, and the loneliness, in a sense, uh, took over them. There's another article from uh, the Courier-Mail a number of years ago that made this comment. It says, uh, this is the first two paragraphs, as Australian society becomes richer, the number of friends the average person keeps declines, according to recent research. And the headline there, Australia's richer society, all the poorer when it comes to friendship. And uh, for some of us, that may not be a huge surprise. The more money we get, the more focus we get on money, the less time we have for relationships and the more loneliness we actually have. And some of you at this point in time might think, well, I don't really experience loneliness too much, I think I'm pretty sweet. Well, let me uh, throw a couple more scenarios out there for you where I think people experience loneliness. Have you ever been someone who's been in leadership? If you've ever been in leadership, you understand loneliness. 
Because that's the nature of being a leader, is you're the first one doing something, you're the first one taking the lead in something. By definition, there is no one else with you. It's just you. And a lot of times as a leader, you've got to make calls that no one else sees, and you're on your own. And that's the nature of leadership. Leadership can be extremely lonely. What about in a happy marriage where the, the husband and the wife love each other, but they, happy marriages absolutely have conflict, don't they? And I tell you, when you're right in the midst of conflict, it can be really lonely, can't it? And it's like I'm going to bed and I'm lying next to the person that I love and that I committed my life to, but right now we feel a million miles away and I feel like I'm just on my own. And, and to some extent, that's where I think the impulse comes from, where we want to pick up the phone and organise a posse to be on our side, isn't it? Because I don't want to be on my own anymore. I need to grab a whole bunch of people to join me rather than me being on my own. What about when you've done something wrong and you know it? Isn't that the lonely, one of the loneliest times? You've blown it. Maybe you've blown it big time. And you just, all of a sudden, it's like everyone else is there, but it's almost like they're ghosts and you can see through them, you know, because you just feel like all of a sudden I'm the only one who's ever existed. What about when you make a mistake and a hundred people see you make the mistake? That's lonely, isn't it? That's just, I mean... The Bible calls that shame. In our culture, we kind of call it low self-esteem, right? But low self-esteem is really just shame. I'm not good enough and everyone can see that. The Bible, the cool thing about the Bible is it doesn't say there's some people who are good enough. It says no one's good enough, all right? So everyone needs a remedy for their shame, but we're not talking about shame today. What about those times where uh, you bought the toys, you bought the, the things with the bells and whistles, you bought the technology and you get two or three weeks, maybe two or three months into it, and it just doesn't do it for you anymore. You've got the stuff. You've got the Xboxes. You've got the Wii's. You've got the iPhones. You've got the house. You've got the cars. You've got the toys in the backyard. You've got the motorbikes. You've got everything to entertain you, but it doesn't work anymore. That's lonely. What am I going to do? I'm stuck. And I think one of the greatest ironies um, about Facebook is Facebook, in one sense, is actually designed to connect people together. But you know, what I reckon it does most successfully is it turns people into narcissists. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It, it, it makes people self-obsessive. And they want to get likes and like for likes and rate for likes and all this sort of stuff. And it's just this weird irony that the, the, the thing, the tool that is meant to connect us to each other ends up connecting us to ourselves. And instead of... I'm not saying it does that all the time, but instead of actually being this tool that provides some kind of resolution to loneliness, it actually increases it. This uh, uh, novelist and writer, uh, Thomas Wolfe, uh, made this comment. And just hang with me, all right? Now, at the moment, you're probably going, this is pretty negative for Christmas Day, right? But you've got to go through the bad news to get to the good news, right? This is, we've just got to get a little bit deeper here. Check Thomas Wolfe out. This is what he said. He's a novelist and writer. The whole conviction of my life now rests upon the belief that loneliness, far from being a rare and curious phenomenon, peculiar to myself and to a few other solitary people, is the central and inevitable feature of human existence. I wonder whether you agree with him. I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. And in some sense, you probably think, they should get a different guy to preach because it's meant to be happy today. But we'll get to happy, right? Here's what he goes on to say. All this hideous doubt, despair and dark confusion of the soul, a lonely man must know. For he is united to no image, save that which he creates himself. He's bolstered by no other knowledge, save that which he can gather for himself with the vision of his own eyes and brain. 
he's sustained and cheered and aided by no party. He's really saying he's just alone and he's stuck. He's given comfort by no creed. He has no faith in him except his own. And often that faith deserts him, leaving him shaken and filled with impotence. This is a great picture, isn't it? You guys have run out of here, just punch in the air. Then it seems to him that his life has come to nothing, that he's ruined, lost and broken, past redemption. And that morning, that bright and shining morning with its promise of new beginnings will never come upon the earth as it did once. This would be a good guy to have as a friend, wouldn't it? <laughs> Go straight to the psychiatrist after you have dinner with him. So here's the reality. We all deal with this, this, uh, this aloneness or this loneliness that we find in our soul. So what have we done to actually rectify or where have we gone to actually bring some sort of resolution to our loneliness? Well, you know, one thing that we've done is we've actually gone to technology. And you guys wouldn't remember this, but most of the other people kind of my age, around my age and up, we're still young, right? It's Christmas Day, we've got to be nice, but don't you remember people said technology is going to mean that we have more leisure time? Remember people saying that? And technology is going to mean that we can connect better with each other. And it hasn't delivered. Have you noticed that? What we've actually got now is we've actually got a culture where technology has not given us more leisure time to connect relationally. What it's actually done is we've turned inward and we've actually become connecting with devices all the time and not with each other. So even in our spare time now, Maybe you could even say that even in the spare time that we used to have before technology came, we're not connecting with each other there anymore either. We tend to connect more with the devices. The beep goes off, the click goes off, I've got an email, I've got an SMS, all right? Someone's liked my post on uh, Facebook, all right? And in, in this weird we're in this weird situation where you're in a house with a bunch of people and the thing that you're connecting the most with probably... A lot of the time is uh, technology. Some of you may not be able to identify with that, but I'm sure that there's a lot of us who can. In uh, 2007, Big Pond uh, ran a, a marketing uh, campaign, and this was uh, the lead uh, kind of image or uh, jingle that they actually used for their marketing campaign. The interesting thing about it is very, very soon after they released this, they changed it, right? But the really cool thing is I got to scan it in from an original copy before they changed it, right? Because the new one is, is far nicer, or the one that they came up with was far nicer. Check this out. It says up on the top left there, it says, we all get on when we all get on. Is this not a picture of loneliness? And the point here is they're saying, you get our uh, ADSL gateway... And everyone in the family, there's not going to be any conflict anymore, all right? And just so that you know, the reason why is because everyone's in a separate room. See that? And that, can you see? I mean, that's a really good picture of what technology has done. We went to technology, in a sense, to save us from loneliness. And what it's actually done is it hasn't helped us. It's actually probably isolated us even more. And then following our binge with uh, technology, or maybe you could even say prior to the binge with it and, and during it and after it, there's always been this quest for love, hasn't there? And there's, there's been this great hope that love will be the thing that will actually save me. Love will be the thing that will fill this void of loneliness that I feel on the inside. And uh, this week I thought I'm going to go and I'll go to... Actually, it was a few days ago. It would have been last week. But I thought I'll go to iTunes. I'll have a look at the top ten on iTunes and see if I can find it, right? Because isn't it the truth? They're just songs on the radio. It's either about uh, sex, love... Or shattered love. That's pretty much it. And I, I honestly, I had to get down to Taylor Swift in the top 10 before I had something I could even use in church. 
All right? If you know what I'm saying. And so, but, but you know what? The, the truth is it doesn't work either, does it? I, I, read, uh, I was reading a book by Ravi Zacharias who quotes another guy um, in his book and, and this guy, particular guy, said that when you turn love into a God, it's a demon. And you don't actually have to look at too many songs on the charts to, real, to see love being a demon for people. And some of the greatest songs uh, probably in, uh, in culture have been the songs where someone's broken up and they're shattered love. And it hasn't done what people want them to do and it takes them to the depths and somehow in the depths humans write some really good songs. And what we actually find about our, our, uh, our loneliness and the isolation that we feel is that uh, we actually need something that's beyond our reach. We're actually hankering after something that the love that we could find, the technology, it's all kind of there and sometimes we feel like we can get it but it's like sand that slips through our fingers and we don't quite get it because you know what, what we're actually after is we're after something that's a little bit further than we can actually reach. Ravi Zacharias in his book um, writes this and I think this is particularly uh, pertinent to uh, Christmas morning. He says, the best analogy is a young boy surrounded by the most sophisticated and expensive gifts at Christmas time. Minutes after the gifts have been unwrapped, he sits staring at the wall, depressed by exhausting so much in so little time. Anyone see this today? In a similar manner, having tasted of every new offering and experience that has come along, we wonder with puzzlement where all the promised fulfilment has disappeared. You see, I think the reason why we're hankering after something and the reason why we're lonely and we're kind of grasping and trying to grab something is because there's a desire inside of us for something that actually can't be fulfilled in this world. This is our culture, is it not? Our culture is, I need something, I'm going to grab it, I'll shove it in there and then it doesn't actually do the job so I've got to keep grabbing things and shoving them in there. You see, all human beings have got desires, innate desires that exist by default. You have a desire to have lunch, all right? People are going to eat and have lunch after this, and some of you may even be hungry now. And uh, there's an argument that C.S. Lewis calls, uh, that he uses, called the argument from desire, and he says that the desire for food is an innate desire which kind of proves that there's something that there is food. He said it would be weird if you could actually find a tribe somewhere on the earth that got hungry but food didn't exist. And they never had to eat. That would be a weird thing. And he talks about the desire for sleep. The fact that people get tired and they sleep kind of means sleep exists. And I think our desire um, or, or the, the heartache that we have of loneliness speaks to a reality that's true because we try to grab other things and, and shove them in there and it just slips through our fingers. And I think the fact that we desire to be close we desire a relationship, we desire intimacy with someone or something. Indicates that there's something beyond what we can actually see in our world to satisfy us. And this is exactly what we find in the Bible. What we actually find in the Bible is, uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, is that God's put eternity into every single person's heart. And I remember talking to a missionary from uh, the former USSR, and, and they did their best to stamp out religion. But you know what they couldn't do is they couldn't stamp out this desire in people's hearts for God. And he said they, go, they went over there after the, uh, the Iron Curtain went down and uh, there were still people that were desiring and seeking after God. And that's because God's made you, he's made all of us to be connected to him. 
He's put eternity in our hearts. And you know what God actually did is God made you from the very beginning to be dependent upon him and to be connected to him. So it makes sense then that if you do what this fish has done, it's just not going to work, all right? I mean, to some degree, as humans, what we've actually done, you know, is we've actually crashed through the side of the fishbowl and said, I'm not going to live connected to God and dependent upon God. I'm going to do it my way. And I think that the, the cry of loneliness that we find in our hearts is a cry for us to get back to where to what we were made to do and where we were made to be. It's, it's a consequence of that. You see, as soon as that fish smashes through the wall of that, that fishbowl, that fish starts to die, doesn't it? Because it's not where it's meant to be. And when humans smash through the wall of their fishbowl and they say, I'm not going to live with God, I'm not going to live connected to God, they start to die too and they get incredibly lonely. The first time this happened was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and they decided that they weren't going to do things God's way. They didn't want to stay connected to God anymore. They wanted to make their own choice and they started to die. And for those of you who know the story, what actually happens with Adam and Eve is they choose to do it their way. They smash through the side of the fishbowl and you know what happens is immediately they start to hide from each other because they put fig leaves on and they start to hide from God. They hide in the bushes and they hide from each other. And you've got the first example of isolation and separation between people and between God and we've been doing it ever since. Because that's the weird thing about it, isn't it? We are lonely but we've got all these habits and all these things that we do that rather than satisfy our loneliness, they propagate it and they cultivate our loneliness. And when God comes to talk to Adam and Eve and says, what have you guys been up to? The first thing that they do, Adam says, well, it was the woman. And you notice there what's actually happening is there's a separation going on. I'm going to separate from Eve. And then Eve says it's the snake. And then Adam and Eve end up ultimately by default blaming God because God gave Adam the woman and uh, God let the snake in the garden so it must be his fault. So you can see there's God, Adam and Eve and all of a sudden rather than everyone being tight, Adam and Eve being in a perfect marriage, literally. Uh, God being connected perfectly to Adam and Eve. Everyone's now split. And we've got for ourselves some isolation and some loneliness going on. But in a sense, the sad thing about that is that's the way that they wanted it. And the really sad thing for us is to some extent, our loneliness is the way that we want it too, isn't it? I mean, it's always an interesting thing on Christmas Day. All the different families that get together and the political issues that have been going on in the families for sometimes decades. And they, they don't want to change it. I was talking to a man yesterday who for 30 years didn't even really want to talk to his brother because his brother swindled, it, swindled him out of so much money. Just didn't want to do it. So for 30 years, and then he started calling him, it sounded like some pretty awkward phone calls because he felt like God wanted him to actually connect with his brother. So he started calling him and he was kind of getting the teenage one-word one answers that you get from teenage boys. Yeah, yeah, good, you know, and the phone call just sounded really awkward, but he just kept pressing on, right? But the interesting thing was for 30 years there was loneliness in a sense between the two brothers and isolation to the point now that they went to a cousin's wedding, uh, I think uh, a few years ago, and the brother actually said to the guy I was talking to yesterday, he said, he said, you're all I've got, take care. And it's, so th it's this beautiful situation where at 
30 years of isolation and loneliness within a family actually starts to come together. So what does God do? When Adam and Eve separate from each other and separate from him, you know what he could do? He could come along and he could just go, forget you guys, you guys can just, I'm gonna, he could just say, I'll leave you alone. He could say, I could, I'm going to put you guys in jail. It's not wrong to put a murderer in jail. So if they've betrayed him and they've gone against him, why not punish them? And what actually happens is um, Adam and Eve end up like this. That's a sad looking fish. All right? I'm telling you, you'd, all of us at times look like that fish, don't we? And, and the isolation, the loneliness is there. You see, a fish can go out of water for a little while, but eventually it's going to die. And that's the story with Adam and Eve. If God just lets them keep going, they're eventually going to die. You see, this fish can deny um, the impulse for water and live as though it were a land animal if it wanted to. I mean, if you had a goldfish kind of flapping across your uh, kitchen bench at home and it's saying, no, these are legs. You're going, you're an idiot, right? These are legs and I'm going I'm to open the door, right? You go, well, you're just crazy. Because at the end of the day, what's going to catch up with this uh, goldfish? Reality, isn't it? And reality always catches up. And if you are made to find your, uh, your connection and, and the deepest relationship, if you're made to find that in God, I'm telling you, it will always catch up with you if you deny that. And you can flop around on the bench, so to speak, and you can decide that you're something else and that you're not dependent upon God. And he didn't make you that way. But you know what? Reality is going to mug you in the end every single time. You know, you could, uh, some of us, really, seriously, let's be honest, some of us are like a hippo insisting it's a clothes dryer, aren't we? We're just going, no, nah, I'm not a hippo, all right, I'm a clothes dryer. You're a swordfish insisting you're dental floss, all right? It just doesn't work. You might think uh, you're an echidna insisting you're a pillow, all right? Or a daewoo insisting it's a Rolls Royce or a $5 Rolex from a stall in Bali, you know? It's, it's like somehow in our lives we end up just trying to play this part and being disconnected from God. And it just doesn't work. And sometimes people around us can see that, can't they? They look at us and they go, there's just something that's not quite right with you. And you know, the ultimate bottom level thing that's not quite right with you is that you're disconnected from God. And you may love Jesus, but we all know that there's times where the relational connection is, is strained or it's distant. And we're close to him, but we're not. Because wasn't that Adam and Eve? God was everywhere in the garden and they were close to him, but they weren't. And sometimes with each other, we can be close to each other, but we're not. We're not close to each other at all. There's, uh, the most famous atheist in Australia is a guy called Philip Adams. And uh, I just want to show you a quick clip. This is on the ABC a little while ago, where uh, Philip Adams talks about the, the place in his life where he decided that uh, God didn't exist, and then the existential or the experiential consequences of, of the decision he makes. The greater problem in discovering that you don't believe in God is you feel an intense and more pervasive sense of loneliness. And when I found that I didn't need to believe in him, I still felt a great sense of desolation and at high degree of fear. Isn't that amazing? He says, I separate from God. I mean, this is exactly what I'm saying to you. You separate from God and you'll experience a high degree of loneliness and fear. All right. 
So what does God do? If the poison is that we separate from God and we separate from each other, what does he do? Well, he does Christmas. That's what he does. All right? Let me read you from uh, Matthew chapter 2. This is the antidote to the poison of loneliness and separation and isolation. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and get this, this is everything. This is why we've gone through all the bad news about loneliness. This is what God does. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? That. Is that not a healing balm on isolation and loneliness? That God doesn't jettison you. God doesn't send you to burn in hell, but he sends his own son because he wants to be with you. That's why Christmas happened, because he wants to be with you. So let him be with you. And other parts in the New Testament actually go on to say that what God actually wants to do is not just be with you by Jesus, but he wants to come and live in you. So you're never alone in leadership anymore. So you're never alone in the conflict that you have with your husband or your wife. So you're never alone when you suffer and when you struggle and when your health starts to fail. You're never, ever alone. Hebrews chapter 13, God says through uh, the writer of Hebrews, he says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. You're never alone. Now you can get other people to help, but you don't have to ring up on the phone and organise a posse for someone who did something against you anymore because you're not alone. He's with you. Isn't that good? And you're not even that nice. I'm not even that nice. Do you get what I'm saying? We're people that just want to distance ourselves from him all the time. We're not even that nice to hang around. We're like the bad cousin that no one wants to talk to at the family reunion. All right? But he wants to be with you. And he'll change you. I'm going to finish up with this story. This is an amazing story about loneliness, a true story. Now, recognise this guy. You might recognise what he's writing on the path there. Uh, that was on the Harbour Bridge in the year 2000. Let me tell you about him. His name is Arthur Malcolm Stace. He was born in Balmain in the inner west of Sydney. He was a child. And as I read this, think about the amount of loneliness that would have been in this guy's life. The child of alcoholics. He was brought up in poverty. In order to survive, he resorted to stealing bread and milk and searching for scraps of food in bins. By the age of 12... Stace, with virtually no formal schooling, had become a ward of the state. He was a foster kid. He wasn't even with his own family anymore. As a teenager, he became an alcoholic and was subsequently sent to jail at 15. The dude's in jail at 15 years old. Afterwards, he worked as a cockatoo or a lookout for a two-up school. In his 20s, he was a scout for his sister's brothels. 
In March 1916, at age 26, he enlisted for World War I with the 19th Battalion, 5th Brigade, AIF, entering with the 16th Reinforcements, service number 5,934. He suffered recurring bouts of bronchitis and pleurisy, which led to his medical discharge on the 2nd of April 1919. Here's the good news. Stace converted to Christianity on the night of the 6th of August 1930 after hearing an inspirational sermon by the Reverend R.B.S. Hammond at St Barnabas's Church, Broadway. Inspired by the words, he became enamoured of the notion of eternity. Two years later, on the 14th of November 1932, Arthur was further inspired by the preaching of evangelist John G. Ridley on the echoes of eternity from Isaiah 57. John Ridley's words, eternity, eternity, I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? This proved crucial in Stace's decision to tell others about his faith. In an interview, Stace said, eternity went ringing through my brain and suddenly I began crying and felt a powerful call from the Lord to write eternity. Even though he was illiterate and could hardly write his own name, Arthur, legibly, the word eternity came out smoothly. Isn't that interesting? In a beautiful copper plate script, he said, I couldn't understand it and I still can't. After eight or nine years, he tried to write something else. Obey God, and then five years later, God or sin, but he could not bring himself to stop writing eternity. Several morning, mornings a week, listen to this, several mornings a week for the next 35 years, Stace left his wife, Pearl, in their home in Bulwara Road, Piemont, around 5am to go around the streets of Sydney and chalk the word eternity on footpaths, train station entrances and anywhere else he could think of. It is estimated that he wrote the word around 500,000 times over 35 years. Isn't that huge? This is an incredibly lonely guy who ends up being connected to God and ends up being connected to eternity and goes around and writes the word a half a million times. This is what Christmas is all about, is it not? Lonely people finding out that God's with them. And it's a huge opportunity for lonely people to have God come and live in them. And so if you, if you love Jesus today, he's already living in you. If you don't love Jesus today, you've got the opportunity that God not only has come down as a baby to live with us and to be with us, but you've got the opportunity that he could come and he could live in you today. And you'll never, ever, ever be alone. And maybe for a while God's been on your case. And maybe for a while you could say, I haven't been alone for the last little while because he's been badgering me. He's got a pretty sweet elbow and I've got soft, tender ribs and he just keeps digging it in. So, so listen to him because he, he wants to be with you. That's what he wants to do. The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of God right now. Is I want to be with you. We're going to sing a a um, carol to close and I'm just going to read the first uh, verse of it because uh, the end of the first verse is uh, so relevant to what I've been speaking about today. A little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, and here are these last two lines, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in me tonight. 
Is that not true? Isn't this our great hope? He's the only one that's going to be good enough to get it done. He's the only one. You, you keep reaching, all of us keep reaching for things. Even if you love Jesus, there's times that you reach for things and they, they don't do it. They don't help. He's the only one that's big enough, that's tender enough, that's tough enough to fill that place in you because he made you for him. You were made for him. Like a fish is made for water, you were made for him. So why don't you stand? I'll just pray for you and uh, we'll sing this carol and we'll be done. God, you're amazing. We're not even that nice in and of ourselves. And that's just an amazing phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. That you want to be with us. That you want us to be with you. It's all about just restoring it back to the way that you made it. God, I pray that for all of us, there'd be a real sense today that Christmas is about us coming back to the way that it was always meant to be. God with us, us with God, tight. God, I pray for uh, any Christians here and they're just in a season at the moment where they're a little bit distant from you. I just ask that you forgive them. A little baby grew up to be a man who died on a cross to forgive people who wander, to forgive fish that smash out of fish bowls. God, I pray that you'd forgive them. I pray that today, deep in all of our hearts of those who love Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to be close with you today, to know that all day today is all about celebrating you being with us. And God, I pray for any here that don't know you, and I pray that maybe today they might even just whisper in their heart that they can see that you're near them, that you're with them, but you actually want, they actually want you to be in them. And they want you to live inside of them, to know they'll never be alone and to walk with you and just get back to the way that they've been made. God, I pray that that would happen for some people today. Amen.